0: This video is brought to you by Devout Decals, makers of reusable Catholic art for your home altar, your bedroom, and your home classroom. Today I have for you a timely reflection, I think, on the Mass, on its impact on our lives, and why we must defend our traditional Masses, regardless of which rite of the church you might attend or belong to. We must defend these things, and uphold them and preserve them for future generations, regardless of what some stuffy prelate who is so rigid in his ways and adherence to modernism that they will work at every turn to undermine the mass. This reflection comes from the late, great Michael Davies, one of the stalwart champions of sacred tradition in the Church in the years after the Council. So I hope you find this illuminating. Enjoy. Enjoy. Despite the abysmal state of the post-conciliar church, which should be evident to anyone with eyes to see and ears to hear, there are still those who claim that we are living in a period of exhilarating renewal and a happy contrast with the moribund church of pre-conciliar days. It seems that even in this age of sophisticated and instant communications there is still truth in the old saying, there are none so blind as those who will not see. Thus, in an editorial published on Friday, the second of April, nineteen seventy-six, the London Universe was able to proclaim that the Holy Father is leading the Church toward a new age of spirituality, and to reproach Archbishop Lefebvre for his refusal to move forward with the Church of the of the seventies. It would have been interesting had the editor of the Universe added a few words on precisely where he thought the Church of the seventies was moving. He clearly considered that his paper is in the vanguard of this movement, and this is something with which no one could disagree. The universe had a circulation of 311,512 in 1963, which had declined to 156,872 by August of 1976, a decrease of 50%. Pope John the Twenty-Third most certainly did not believe the Church to be in any sort of decline when he convoked the Council. Indeed, When he issued his apostolic constitution, Humanae Salutis, convoking Vatican II, he made a special point of paying tribute to the vitality of the Church as it then existed. It has, he said, followed step by step the evolution of peoples, scientific progress, and social change. It has opposed decisively the materialistic ideologies which deny faith. Lastly, it has witnessed the rise and growth of the immense energies of the apostolate, of in prayer, of action, in all fields. It has seen the emergence of a clergy constantly better equipped in learning and virtue for its mission, and a laity which has become even more conscious of its responsibilities within the bosom of the church, and in a special way of its duty to collaborate with the church hierarchy. To this should be added the immense suffering of entire Christian communities, through which a multitude of admirable bishops, priests, and laymen seal their adherence to the faith, Bearing targeting of all kinds and revealing forms of heroism which certainly equal those of the most glorious periods of the Church. When Pope John wrote this in 1961, who could have imagined that his council would be prevented from rejecting the Russian error, which was responsible for this immense suffering, and prevented from rejecting it by a process of calculated betrayal perpetrated by some of its members, an incident which will be fully documented elsewhere. In the same Apostolic Constitution, Pope John points out the contrast between a world which reveals a grave state of spiritual poverty and the Church of Christ, which is still so vibrant with vitality. A church vibrant with vitality in 1961, according to Pope John, and a church in the process of self-destruction in 1968, according to Pope Paul. Who would have believed that a debacle of such proportions could occur in such a short time? The, the Aryan and Protestant errors were a gradual pro- processes compared with this. The answer can only be found, as Pope Paul claims, by the entry of an enemy of man into the Church, an entry into which the prince of this world made through the window to the world opened by Pope John. I am certain required, Cardinal Felici, Secretary-General to the Council, that when in the Council I pronounced the ritual words, Exant omnes everyone out, which all remember one who did not obey was the devil, he is always where confusion triumphs, to stir it up and take advantage of it. It is fashionable for Catholic innovators to decry the preconciliar conciliar church as concerned with little more than personal piety and indifferent to the injustice and suffering in the world. This is a monstrous travesty of the truth, as every adult Catholic must surely know. Never in the history of our planet has so much concern been shown for material needs of all humanity, as that displayed by the Catholic Church in this present century. All over the world, selfless priests, members of religious orders, and lay Catholics have established countless schools, orphanages, homes for the elderly. Wherever need existed, Catholic relief agencies could be found ministering to the hungry, the homeless, and in other needs. But in the Preconciliar Church, there was never any confusion about what the prime duty of the Church was, to preach the Kingdom of God. And when the Kingdom of God is preached, all else will follow. And there can be no doubt that the service rendered to the material needs of men, incalculable though this most certainly was, pales into insignificance besides the spiritual solace brought by the church to hundreds of millions of men and women of all all creeds and all nations. The beauty and comfort of her liturgy, the grace of her sacraments, the inspiration of her teaching, these gave meaning to a life which for millions would otherwise have been meaningless. They gave the strength to endure in a life that would otherwise have been unendurable, and above all... The church was concerned with the truth, the truth that is Christ, the truth that is his gospel, the truth that we have a Father in heaven who loves us, who sent his Son to die for us, so that we can live with him forever in the happiness of heaven. Monsignor Lefebvre considers that. The master stroke achieved by Satan is to have thrown everyone into disobedience by virtue of obedience. The most typical example of this fact is that the aggiornamento of religious orders. Through obedience, religious are made to disobey the very laws and foundings of their founders when they pledged to observe when they took their vows. This is the cause of the profound confusion which has spread throughout these communities and in the heart of the church. In this case, obedience should be refused categorically. Even legitimate authority cannot demand the the doing of evil or dishonorable acts. No one can oblige us to transform our vows into solemn promises. No one can force us to become modernists. The consequences of these blindness are evident and tragic. The prevailing attitude among so many of the clergy is to accept a particular practice, not because it is an inherent and in enduring truth or value, but because it happens to be the current policy. Thus, the very clergy who would have denounced, and rightly so, any layman, who attended a service of our separated brethren, for the council will now denounce any layman who suggests that the faith could be in any way compromised by attending such services. Attendance at these services, although a matter of discipline, almost certainly involves vital doctrinal principles. Thus, a matter touching upon the very nature of the church Christ founded is seen in itself as something neutral. All that matters is the current instruction issued by whoever is one rank higher up the hierarchical scale. Another sphere in which there was great scope for advance was the application of Catholic social teaching in the temporal order, primarily the responsibility of an informed laity. The fact of the matter is that the majority of the laity were, and still are, very uninformed, in fact frequently quite ignorant of the fact that the church has any social teaching. Far too many laymen tended to compartmentalize their religion and failed to realize that being a Catholic involved grave responsibilities regarding their obligations in the temporal order. To give one obvious example, far too few Catholic employers or trade unionists allow the teaching of the popes and their social encyclicals to influence the manner in which they conduct themselves in, say, pay negotiations. Little thought was given to the common good, little thought to justice, to equity, to the effect of a particular settlement on the national economy. For most Catholic employers, just as for non-Catholic employers, the, the object was to give them as little as they could possibly without provoking a strike, for most. Catholic workers, the object was to get as much as possible out of them, even if it meant going on strike. When one considers the extent of the Catholic school system in the United Kingdom, there can be no doubt that the absence of a large and articulate body of Catholics on both sides of industry intent upon implementing Catholic social teaching indicates a widespread and culpable failure to teach young Catholics their duties in the temporal order. The fact that so many Catholics concerned to bring about Justice in the temporal order, and motivated by sincere idealism, now imagine that the only way they can achieve this is by espousing or at least cooperating with some form of Bolshevism, which can be traced back to no small extent to the preconciliar neglect of Catholic social teaching. Truly prophetic voices, such as those of Father Paul Crane or Hamish Fraser, who tried to combat the almost total apathy with regard to the social teaching of the Church, remain for the most part unheeded the common lot of prophets. Similarly, in some nominally Catholic countries before the Council, the complete lack of temporal justice constituted a a grave mess. Some Catholics from the more privileged classes felt that they were fulfilling their duties in the social sphere simply by being Anti-Bolshevik in a sterile and negative sense. While Catholics clearly have a duty to oppose that ideology in the in the temporal sphere, the most effective way to overcome it is by working to remove the conditions of injustice which cause so many of the of the the more vulnerable members of society to look upon that idea as their only hope of achieving a standard of living consistent with human dignity. There is also a definite need for widespread liturgical renewal in the pre-conciliar Church, but a renewal. On the lines advocated by the liturgical movement and approved by such popes as st pius x or pius Twelfth, a renewal based on the principles set out in chapter nine of Cranmer's godly order the pseudo renewal which has followed vatican ii has nothing in common with the authentic spirit of the papally approved liturgical movement as Father Louis Boyer, one of its leading advocates, has testified. True liturgical renewal would not have involved discarding the traditional liturgy to replace by a continually evolving and ecumenically inspired series of gimmicks. It would have involved utilizing the existent liturgy to its fullest potential, and this potential was infinite. In a parish where the liturgy came alive, the parish came alive in Mesnil St. Louis, and Francis, for example, between the years 1849 and 1903. The saintly Pierre Emmanuel transformed his parish into what could truly be described as a religious community, mainly through bringing his people to know, to love, and to play their proper part in the liturgy. Above all, by use of Gregorian chant, Père Emmanuel's peasant parishioners could sing Latin vespers in their church each evening, joyfully and easily, than any parish could have done the same. If such parishes had been the rule rather than the only too rare exception, then the history not only of the church but of the world would have been different. One of the things that I've been trying to sort of hit on the last few days is this linkage between how we worship is how we live. And I think that Michael Davies does a good sort of job of illustrating that connection as he saw it happening in front of him in the years after the council. And really the dynamics that were at play there, a lot of which we don't really talk about much anymore. So I hope you found this useful. And I hope that you will pray for the church this weekend. Thanks for listening. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.